More Than a Murder Ballad How Browning Called Out Sitcom Romance As The Worst Kia and welcome to Requisite Words. I'm Peter Ravlich, and you're listening to a podcast about poetry. I've been carrying Porphyria's Lover with me for some years now. It's among the first works that really showed me the scope of poetry, and for that reason it's one I keep returning to. But there are a few interesting features of this work for a modern audience, and turning a critical eye to the piece can really help them pop. The first thing to consider is that the speaker, the titular lover, is genderless, or at least no personal pronouns are used to describe them. The temptation today, of course, would be to read this poem as a commentary on gender politics, the patriarchy, and the power imbalance inherent in societal structures that literally has life and death repercussions. And you could well make an argument for that reading. However, there's something else going on here. The speaker is also speechless, and called me when no voice replied. They are also agentless for the first half of the poem. She put my arm about her waist, and made her smooth white shoulder bare, and all her yellow hair displaced, and stooping, made my cheek lie there, and spread o'er all her yellow hair. Porphyria has all the power, all the agency at first. Let's consider the actions of the poem in list form, and who or what is ascribed them. The rain sets early in, and is full of rage and frustration, although largely impotent. It tears the elm tops down for spite, and does its worst to vex the lake. The speaker only listens. Porphyria glides into the cottage. She makes the fire blaze up. She shuts the door. She systematically removes her outerwear. She sits down. She calls her lover. She moves their arm around her. She adjusts her hair. She murmurs words of love and regret. She chose to visit her lover tonight, despite the weather and the circumstances that prevent them being together. The lover finally acts, and even that is merely to look up at her eyes. And then they find a thing to do. Up until that tipping point, they have been entirely passive. They have listened silently. They have observed but they have not interacted with Porphyria, except through her own actions. And in that moment of love, what do they find to do? Murder. So we have a speaker who is genderless, descriptionless, unless you count one so pale for love of her, which I wouldn't. That's the invocation of a classical trope, not a description. And powerless. They're a placeholder, then, for something else. This poem is often introduced as a murder ballad, an attempt to get inside the mind of a killer. But I'd posit something more in Browning's effort here. For one, a study in aberrant psychology would ideally imbue the subject with some personality to study. Instead, we have a singular fixation. Porphyria is the speaker's entire focal point, 
and everything is framed around her and their relationship. This element is not novel, and is in fact a feature of much earlier love poetry. It's the very overly wrought depiction that Shakespeare argues against in Sonnet 130. So if this is meant to be a psychological study of a murderer, it's a highly derivative and inconsistent one. Bear in mind the historical context. Porphyria's Lover was published in 1836. That's about ten years before Wuthering Heights, but a couple of decades after Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and Emma. This is a literary period that defines not only the term romantic, but also our concept of toxic masculinity and the nascent buds of the modern feminist movement. It was also a period during which classical, capital C, notions of love and the division between eros and agape became more heavily scrutinized, and during which contemporary depictions of love began to evolve. In this poem, we have two clear archetypes in the single person of the speaker, and the result of their conflation. And interestingly, this same conflation is often identified as a core misstep that contributes to damaging models of masculinity today. The first archetype is this, the lover who literally lives for their beloved, even if that love is unrequited. This is an ancient trope, although the more recent Romeo and Juliet is certainly the example that springs to mind, and is probably the most responsible for identifying it as a depiction of love. The second archetype is just as cliched, but remains more acceptable in modern texts, even though it is arguably the more problematic of the two. The lover who wants to possess their beloved, and for whom jealousy is inseparable from love. In the speaker, we have both archetypes taken to their logical conclusions in turns. So we have the lover who is utterly powerless without their beloved. They cannot even keep the fire going, or speak or move without Porphyria. She is their all, and they are so pale, near death, without her. We then have the lover who sees a chance to keep her all for themselves, at a single terrible cost. And here we see the tragic conflation of the two archetypes. The lover who lives for only love makes a consistent, logical extrapolation. If Porphyria also loves them in the same manner in that moment, then her ultimate wish would be to preserve the moment by any means necessary. And we've already established that life, and therefore death, means nothing so long as you have your beloved. Browning's poem is interesting because it so cleanly draws this distinction. This is not the deranged act of a deviant murderer. It is the logical, inescapable outcome of jealous, hyperbolic treatments of love that diminish the agency of the participants, diminish their partnership, making them subservient pawns to the love itself. Objectification is another component often raised by the poem, because there's another inversion going on here. The lover is not initially objectifying Porphyria, but themselves. Porphyria is the human with agency, and the lover is the object with a single purpose, to fulfil her wish. 
The closing lines make this explicit, even while shifting to the language of objectification for Porphyria. I, its love, am gained instead. The lover is the object of desire, attained by Porphyria's implied wish, although said wish is discerned only by projecting the lover's understanding of love into Porphyria. She could not give herself to me forever, the lover states early in the poem. So instead, they give themselves to Porphyria, in a moment where they see their level of intensity reflected. And in that warped understanding of love, it's entirely consistent that it doesn't matter which one of them is alive. In fact, it makes sense for the lover to be the living guardian of their relationship, because their side of the relationship is constant and unfailing. This type of obsession is again a trope dating to the earliest human stories. In the works of Ovid, we see the Olympian gods obsessing over favourite mortals, contorting the very fabric of the universe to maintain unhealthy relationships. And yet, consistently through the ages, this same type of destructive and deeply problematic love is lauded again and again. Want to show two characters are falling in love? Do we demonstrate their deepening trust and a mutual understanding? Sometimes, yes. But more often, we see acute jealousy used as a shorthand for an emergent relationship. Spoilers ahead, but look at episode 9 of Star Wars for an unnecessary and misguided example of this. The injection of jealous reactions into Poe's character to hint at possible emergent relationships does not demonstrate the measured, mature reaction of someone you'd want to, say, promote to the rank of general, but the poorly formed, immature response of a child who has been taught erroneously about love and never grown above those lessons. Better still, look at any major TV series of the last few decades. Almost every single character on Friends, The Simpsons, Modern Family, Castle, How I Met Your Mother, or Parks and Rec, has undergone arcs featuring jealous behaviour as a demonstration of love, and often love that is held up as a model. And yet, it's been self-evident throughout history, that while this model of love is often a learned feature of our first relationship, maybe our first two or three if we're slow learners, it is also something we need to be more consciously critical of if we don't want it to persist as a norm. Shakespeare attempted this when he killed Romeo and Juliet. They were never characters to be emulated. And Browning does the same thing, in an even starker demonstration in Porphyria's Lover. Porphyria's Lover is not a portrait of a killer. It is a portrait of problematic social norms which persists to this day. It's an indictment of jealousy, and a reminder that love and obsession should not be confused. Let's share it again with that distinction in mind, and see if it can spark anything the next time we go to repeat a stale cliché about relationships, or perpetuate a logically indefensible mindset towards love. The rain set early in tonight. The sullen wind was soon awake. It tore the elm tops down for spite, and did its worst to vex the lake. 
I listened, with heart fit to break, when glided in Porphyria. Straight she shut the cold out and the storm, and kneeled and made the cheerless grate blaze up, and all the cottage warm. Which done she rose, and from her form withdrew the dripping cloak and shawl, and laid her soiled gloves by, untied her hat and let the damp air fall. And last she sat down by my side and called me. When no voice replied, she put my arm about her waist, and made her smooth white shoulder bare, and all her yellow hair displaced, and stooping made my cheek lie there, and spread o'er all her yellow hair. Murmuring how she loved me, she, too weak for all her heart's endeavour, to set its struggling passion free from pride and vanitized dissever, and give herself to me forever. But passion sometimes would prevail, nor could tonight's gay feast restrain a sudden thought of one so pale for love of her, and all in vain. So she was come through wind and rain. Be sure I looked up at her eyes, happy and proud, at last I knew Porphyria worshipped me. Surprise made my heart swell, and still it grew, while I debated what to do. That moment she was mine, mine, fair, perfectly pure and good. I found a thing to do, and all her hair in one long yellow string I wound, three times her little throat around and strangled her. No pain felt she. I am quite sure she felt no pain. As a shut bud that holds a bee, I warily oped her lids, again laughed the blue eyes without a stain, and I untightened next the tress about her neck, her cheek once more blushed bright beneath my burning kiss. I propped her head up as before, only this time my shoulder bore her head which droops upon it still, the smiling rosy little head. So glad it has its utmost will, That all it scorned at once is fled, And I its love am gained instead. Porphyria's love, she guessed not how Her darling one wish would be heard. And thus we sit together now, And all night long we have not stirred, And yet God has not said a word. Requisite Words is an Inklings production. Find out more at inklings.co.nz or follow us on Twitter at Requisite Words. Opening music is Be Chillin' by Alexander Nakarada. If you enjoy listening, don't forget to give us a review on your favourite podcast app and let us know what you'd like to hear more of. <laughs>